yo, what's good, Internet? It's the Harvester, Colin Atrophy, and I am happy to welcome you to episode 18 of Radio Harvester. And uh, the guest this month is Kenya Robinson, a very talented, multidisciplinary artist who has been uh, practicing art professionally for a bunch of years now. And we talked about a lot of cool stuff. I met Kenya like a year and a half ago when uh, my partner Becca was curating a Black Performance Art Summit here in Austin, Texas, and... Kenya was one of the artists that came out and we hit it off. She's very cool and interesting. She does some fun stuff with, we have some mutual friends in New York where she lives now. And I, you know, I, I I really wanted to get her on the show because I think it's cool to have people that make all different kinds of stuff. And it's cool to have someone who is adjacent to punk now, but maybe doesn't come from a punk background. Uh, and so we had a really good conversation and, uh, and I, I look forward to hearing what people think about it. And one big change that has occurred in the world of Radio Harvester is that I'm not recording in pizzerias now that I live in Texas. So we recorded this at a Mexican restaurant called Los Jalicenses on Airport Boulevard in Austin. It's great. Kenya got a pork chop, which I should have done. I got a quesadilla and I had a cold already and you can tell I'm a little sniffly and nasal and uh, my voice sounds funny. I'm self-conscious about that, but let's get it. Kenya is great. She's got a great voice and a great laugh. It will be really good to listen to, and she's talented and smart. And let's do this. from Gainesville originally. I'm from Gainesville, Florida. Go Gators. It's a nice town. There was this, uh, like, there was this kid that used to hop trains in, like, a full Gators sweatsuit, Mm -hmm. and his name was, like, Gator Chris or Gator Steve or something like that. I forget his name. It's just, like, a first name with the word Gator before it. Gator Mm -hmm. Dan. Mm -hmm. And he was just, like, a drugged-out crust lord. Uh, but instead of looking like a gutter punk, he wore like just like a full Gainesville Gator sweatsuit all the time. Yeah. It was a very good look. Well, I mean, everybody is in a uniform. I mean, my, my current sleep shirt is a, mm-hmm. a University of Florida. Yeah, I noticed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, so um, tell me about that a little bit. Like, what What's your childhood in Gainesville like? Well, I mean... Um, as I mentioned before, uh, my parents are from there too, mm-hmm. and a bunch of mm, like my both my grandmothers are from there also. Whoa! So it's you know we've been there for a, a good while, and my parents actually you know we went to the same high school, also the same high school as Tom Petty. Um, you know how many people I've met. Gainesville, yeah. who Tom Petty is their dad. They need to stop lying. <laughs> no, 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 like their mom told them that. Oh, shit. <laughs> you know, when they were young. That's like, crazy. Tom Petty's actually my dad, you know. He, he's just not around, but like, you know, my mom said, you know, it was definitely him that's the father. <laughs> All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suspiciously yeah. acquiesce to their... Statement. <laughs> who am I? Who am I? Again? I know. I mean, get swab if yeah. you want to, or you can just wh- whatever. 
the narratives that people make to make sense of their lives mm-hmm. and make sense of life to their children or whatever, I am not interested in intervening unless those are bolstering. Word up. You know, negative structures. That's right. That. That's right. Um, so it's kind of nice to have that experience because it feels really kind of vintage. Mm-hmm. You know that you're that you grow up in the same hometown as your parents. I remember I got the first time I got in trouble in elementary school. I got it's in the vice principal's office. My mom comes in, and the vice principal, John Foliano, was like Kathy Madden, and my mom was like uh, Tegendorf. Now you know I'm married, and he was like. I used to sit behind you in so-and-so class at like blah, blah, blah. It was like whatever school she went to that wasn't uh, gender segregated. She mm-hmm. went to Catholic schools most of her life. Mm. But he was like, my, my, the vice principal of my grammar school had had a crush on my mom like in junior high school or some mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like, oh, this is some, this is some deep neighborhood shit going on right yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. And we lived in a totally different place than where my mom grew up, but it was still just like New York kind of outer borough diaspora. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my parents even kind of have a little bit of that kind of time folding on themselves because my, my dad had a big crush on my mom in high school because they were like the first first classes to integrate Gainesville High School because no they were shit. closing down um, Lincoln High School, which turned into my middle school. No yeah, so there's all this like very interesting history surrounding yeah. it, and like uh, Florida is um, like unique uh, in that it had so much uh, support in terms of uh, high school education for Black people because mm-hmm. it's it's not like they were in every like around the turn of the century there weren't there were under I saw I read this census and it was like. There were certainly less than um, 50 high schools that black kids could go to in the U.S. Yeah. And I think Florida had three. What What year did they integrate? Um, like, my parents, my dad graduated in 68, and my mom in 69, so, like, a little bit before that. 64-ish, yeah. So, yeah, somewhere okay. in that. Like, Florida... You know, the way they even set up the communities, like so many communities in the Deep South, like black people lived like on the outskirts of town, but the traditionally black um, space, the Mount Pleasant area, yeah, is right near downtown. Right. So it's kind of, it's, uh, it's like this history that's hidden in plain sight too, that gives a flavor like, a, adds complexity to the flavor of, like, a, a college town. Sure. Um, so, and then my dad went on to be uh, in the early classes of integration at the University of Florida, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, see, like, kind of hearing those stories, um, it made it clear that history is complicated. Uh-huh. And I, I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like, you know, because Florida is weird. You know, it's like one of those places that, like, kind of is a butt of many jokes. Yeah. You know, but I, I I like it. I think that I don't know if I would be open to, as open to 
being an artist professionally if I hadn't had that upbringing. What do you mean? It's just like lots of weird natural stuff. Uh-huh. People, you know, it's the type of place that people have crazy collections, you know, like they may they may have a junkyard but they only collect hubcaps. You sure, know, yeah, yeah, and they'll yeah, yeah. like display it. So you, you have that visual information that doesn't is normalized. Right. You know, that you could just be into that. Um and then because it's a college town, you have this it's like certainly lots of rural spaces. Mm-hmm. Um but then there's like this kind of these touches of cosmopolitanism that happen because of the people that are studying there or the conferences that they have right. or you know like being introduced to, to opera really because they have this spring arts festival that gets pretty um, extravagant mm-hmm. and one time they did a production of Porgy and Bess and I was one of the kids in it so you okay. were, yeah, yeah. so you end up learning about that and the people that are some of the people that are um, in the production are voice professors in the mu- music school. Sure. I didn't leave like mad at Gainesville. I just knew I needed to have another experience. And where'd you go? To Los Angeles. You went to college in Los Angeles? No, I I, I dropped out of college. Like I have 13 credits left in undergrad. I went to UF. And was like a total overachiever, but don't you have an MFA? I do. <laughs> but you, didn't, you never finished undergrad? No. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to know about this. Okay, so, so you're in high school. You're a young person. You're in Gainesville, whatever. As a yeah. kid, you're making art, weird collages and stuff. And and doing like like my mom's putting me in like you know a Saturday drama classes or um. Let's see, I, I did summer musical theater and then I was a student body president, so that would be like an opportunity for me to essentially make installations and like that's really what I was doing. Like I was the um, editor of our creative writing journal and okay. it was like, oh, we should um, uh, work with the art students to put in illustrations. Right. And like it was like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Like as if nobody had really thought about that. But I realize it's the same thing I'm doing now. But I didn't identify it as contemporary art. Right, because it's. I mean, you got to see contemporary art, and there yeah, really, have... there really wasn't that aspect. Um, yeah, are there like museums or anything? In... There, there's like you know, there's a harm museum. There are museums, and I actually like when I was in middle school. After school, I would work at the Natural History Museum, like doing like like painting berries for installations and stuff like that. So, I started to have some idea of the different things that you could do. Like you could be a medical illustrator, sure, or you know, like that kind of stuff. But I just, you know, I all I knew is I was going to be a professional. Like I knew I was going to go to college uh-huh. without saying somebody saying, "Can you going to go to college?" Right. And I knew I was going to be a professional. And a professional meant you were like a doctor, an attorney, a teacher. You know, it was a very, like a, a, a static set. Where did you get that idea? Or like, why did you have that idea? I think, I think just from family, uh-huh. you know. Um, I mean, I, it was obvious that I was a creative person. Right. And my 
you know, I was a crafter and a model maker and, mm-hmm. you know, um, an only child, so I had a lot of stuff. Right. You know, I had a lot of access to, like, if I, if I got into this space where I wanted to do in cross-stitch, well, my mom bought me all this shit from cross-stitch. Or sure. If I wanted a microscope or a telescope or watercolors, marker, like, anything like that. Yeah, your parents made it happen. You made so it they happen. were very supportive. Yes, yes. And even though um, I had this idea that I was going to be a professional, you know, they were very nurturing of, of my creative exploits. Sure. So you go to UF. Yeah, I go to UF, and I'm like, you know, on this committee and that committee, and uh-huh. joining the sorority and the whole thing. Okay. And I just, I like basically became suicidal. Like, I would have these kind of, like, imaginings of, like, driving my car into the... Like, I lived... Around this time, I lived um, right around the corner from the president's house. And um, I would imagine driving, like, crashing my car into the front of the house. And just, you know, I think I was just growing pains. And I, I felt kind of, like, not able to access, like significant adults including my parents to like figure it out so when I had an opportunity to um, I ended up taking a a medical leave of absence because they thought I had lupus whoa and then um, and I was like I lost like 20 pounds it was like it was crazy and then um, I just never kind of righted the ship like it just Got bo- it was like boring. Sure. I was frustrated, and so I had this opportunity to move to. At first, I thought we, I was gonna move to San Francisco, but the woman who I was gonna be moving with, along with my boyfriend at the time, um, she was applying for a product development course at FITM. Uh huh. Uh, Fashion Institute of Design Merchandising yeah. in San Francisco, but they didn't offer that major there, so that's why it was Los Angeles. No way. Okay. And she hired me to um, help her make her por- portfolio. So up until this point, you're at you're at uh, UF. Mm-hmm. You're on a kind of professional path still? Yeah, I mean, I ended up taking, like, around this time, I'm taking the um, the LSAT, you know, um, okay. that kind of thing. And I, I'm, like, I know I'm, like, befuddling some things in the timeline. Like, when I was, sure. when I was, I took that leave of absence, I had to get, I got a job at a motel. And that okay. was really interesting. Sure. Rush, like it's not even there anymore. Um, and I got like when I came back, it was like I couldn't. Oh, I you could only let one semester lapse in between. Right. So I came back that summer, and somehow I was able to pay for it because uh, my scholarship didn't pay for the summer. So somehow I got I got some funding to do that, and then when I came back in the fall, it just kind of like crashed and burned. Right, and so then you're like, I have to get out of here. I gotta get out of here. Do you have like an art practice yet or anything? Are you making stuff no, in that way? No, 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 not at all. Okay. Like, 
I'm, I'm doing a little bit because I'm also kind of halfway working at a boys and girls club. I'm making all of my uh, worksheets for my students because right. I'm starting to learn PageMaker. This is even before they, they release Illustrator. <laughs> and um, I used to have that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I did some zine stuff on that when mm-hmm. I was very young. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm still utilizing, like, you know, a creative approach to the work that I was doing but it was when I realized what this friend was going to be doing because I always like clothes and I didn't know I was like oh you work as a buyer oh you you want to work in the barrel market and you want to like I'm like oh I could because she ends up getting in Right, and I, I had so much fun putting together this portfolio that I was like, "Ooh, maybe that's what I want to do." So I got this book. This is before Google. Mm-hmm. So I bought a book that was like moving to California. <laughs> it was like no called that. I got that's it. amazing. I got it at Borders Books. Yeah, and it seems so anachronistic today, but. Mm-hmm. I used to get books about all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. I read there that if you get state citizenship, you can get financial aid from the state of California. So I'm like, I'm going to work there for a year, uh-huh. and I'm going to go to FITM too. Yeah. Um, but I was doing uh, all kind of graphic design stuff um, for designers there. And then and you just learned that through doing your work at the Boys and Girls Club? Boys and Girls Club. I also worked for the College of Education in their recruitment and outreach office. And so I would make all their like little brochures and stuff to recruit students. Sure. Um, and then I just, you know, I had a computer and I always made sure I had the program. And I just, I mean, I, I realized, I'm like, oh shit, I've been doing this for like 20 plus years. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I decide I'm going to get this citizenship. I'm going to go to FITM. But in bet- as I'm getting day- working for a year, I realize that I, you know, I don't have the money to go to FITM because it's private. So, but one of my clients, my graphic design clients, is a, a fashion designer who, because at that time it was a lot of... Um, like customizing stuff so like taking stuff that already was made and like cutting it up and stuff but she actually made her own patterns and like and I was like what how'd you learn that and she's like oh I went to trade tech Los Angeles trade technical college so I found out about that and ended up um enrolling there and that's when I that's how I got my associates in apparel design and production okay and do that Experience that was like art school because I had to take a series of sketching classes. Right, you're learning the rudiments of mm-hmm, of balance and proportion. And but you did that in a trade school for fashion design. Correct. Oh, that is rad. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, it was like I took a um, history of costume design with Mr. Marriage, R.I.P. Mr. Marriage, and um, you know, I started to learn about like looking at. Uh, clothing in a different way Mm -hmm. and like because you know we'd have to we had to keep these notebooks 
you wouldn't get a grade per se, but you'd get like um, a check off. And it could be anything, you know, in there. It could be um, uh, sketches, fabric, clippings from magazines, the whole nine. And I just always kept that. And, you know, the, the places that you would get inspiration were in keeping with the kinds of work you would do as a studio artist. Right. Wow. That's the first time I was doing research on my um, my thesis project, and that's when I I found out about Kira Walker. That's the first time I ever seen um, a contemporary artist and know that that's what that was because I had been introduced to the concept of contemporary art through fashion design. It's a porous boundary. Mm-hmm. The fashion world and the art world. Absolutely. I mean, in fact. The first time I went to, you know, they, I, I worked in, in the apparel industry for nearly 10 years. Oh, no way. And we used to get these um, magazines that would be like trend reports. And they oftentimes they would have, they would take photographs or sculptures or paintings from contemporary art and use it as a base to make color palettes. Sure. And so there was this one, I can't remember this dude's name, but I think he's from Zimbabwe. He's a, a photographer. And he took all these photos of uh, farm workers in, I think in like Botswana or something like that. And they had all this like tarp, like artfully arranged on their body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I got a lot of color ideas from that. And the first time I had ever gone to a commercial gallery, like gallery hopping, uh, I saw the full size. It was a huge photograph, like a, a print like that went from like the ceiling to the floor. Yeah. And it was of that uh, series of pictures. So I was like, it clicked in my mind uh, that this is the side I'd rather be on. Because I was getting very frustrated mm-hmm. in the fashion industry because I always worked you know like I mean it's like mid-market stuff so like Mark Echo Cut and Soul and I worked for a dress house that would um, uh, prepare uh, ranges for Ann Taylor and stuff it was very like sure. you know middle America so anything that I was trying to do you know I didn't realize, because, you know, they train you very differently in school, because they, you know, they uh, imply, they market that you're going to have all this creativity, but really, much of your work is um, taking what sold last year and updating it. Right. How old are you before you start, like, a dedicated actual art process? Mm. Process is the word I'm looking for. Okay. Because, like, something that interests me, I guess, in, like, talking with people whose work I admire and who I think have uh, like a just like a admirable uh, diligence to the way they just like grind and create stuff is that you know some of the people I talk to it's like oh yeah I've been just doing this since I was a little kid and I always knew Mm -hmm. I just had this like like, just like this mandate Mm -hmm. from childhood and no one could explain it I just kept I was always wearing these crazy outfits as a kid and now I make dresses or whatever. Right. But then some people I talk to and they're like, 
yeah, I went on all these different paths, mm -hmm. and I, I just landed on this thing that mm -hmm. really clicked. Mm -hmm. Later, later in life, mm -hmm. then is like the kind of normative narrative about how a creative person or whatever works. Absolutely. Right? And I find that really fascinating because I've been through. Uh, so many iterations of what my like creative pursuits mm -hmm. have looked like mm -hmm. in the you know 34 years or whatever that I've been alive, mm -hmm. and so it's it's really fascinating for me to hear because you're someone who I I met as an artist. I met you mm -hmm. at like a performance symposium. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think of you as uh, like a professional artist who makes art and uh, and that's your life. Yeah, and so. To hear that this actually is like there was just this long kind of prelude to it yeah. is is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I would I, I would say often that I was walking down the street, minding my own business, and then um, art jumped on my back and asked me for fifty dollars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think um, I mean, so many people have helped. Like when I moved to New York. I kept on running into people who recognized me as a member of their tribe. When did you move to New York? Um, in 2000, at the end of 2002. Okay. So there's... It's have a, you started making art yet in L.A. at this point? Mm-mm. I'm just like, I'm trying to get a gig working as a designer. And this it, is still fashion world. This is still fashion world. I'm getting really uh, frustrated because... It's obvious that I'm not fitting the, you know, I had the classic, you know, uh, I'm scheduled for an interview, and when I get there, they're like, who are you here to see? Type of thing, like, they're just like, oh no, we didn't expect you to be black. What did they expect? It's it's LA, it could be anything. Sure, yeah, I, I guess know. people got all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know, I have, I think growing up in New York, I feel comfortable around all different kinds of people. And I also feel comfortable talking about race in a way that I've noticed it, the only people it seems to make uncomfortable are white people from oh. homogeneously white places. Correct. But like there, you know, I'm just like accustomed to a certain amount of diversity. And so mm -hmm. I don't, my expect, I have like, I have a lot of expectations of what someone might look like based on their name, like right. a combination of a first right. and last name. Mm -hmm. And I just can't imagine a circumstance where I see the name Kenya on a, Kenya Robinson, Robinson. That is the blackest a, thing yeah, ever. Right? On an application, and then I'm surprised. I can't fathom that. Mm -hmm. But that's, I mean, that's got to be very disheartening. It was, because I was like, I ended up working at a um, car cover company. Car make, cover? Like the... Yeah, like vehicles. All kinds okay. of vehicles, and making patterns for that. And that was like, soul-sucking, and um, I remember, you know, the, the big... The big to do was to to on Fridays uh, get the recap. They had already had a, a, a fantasy league for for Survivor, and they would consult on that. <laughs> and we would get something ordered, and we would watch. Somebody would tape. Oop, I don't know where that went. Tape, <laughs> tape Friends, and we would watch Friends. And I had never seen Friends. I was like. These white people are crazy. Friends. Yeah, and I it was a two-hour commute there and back. It was just like... In uh, L.A. traffic. 
I took, I, I didn't have a car, so I took an express bus. Okay. I would leave, I mean, it was like so bad. I was living in a, a hotel with my boyfriend downtown, like Hotel Cecil, like you could see Skid Row, like uh -huh. right there. Like there were a lot of like vets with like no legs and yeah. shit. And how it ended up, how I ended up, I always wanted to live in New York. Right. Um, but it seemed like just such like, this is crazy. How right. is that going to happen? Um, but two things happened. I had a, a very vivid dream that I was there. Like one of those dreams where you wake up like, <gasps> and I was yeah. like, I have to get to New York. Uh -huh. And my boyfriend at the time, his uh, older brother had a chiropractic ca uh, practice in Dallas. And he bought me a one-way ticket. So I came with the chiropractor. Yeah. All right. You know, like a, a, a suitcase and a dream type shit. Yeah. And That's beautiful. Yeah, I didn't even have a like a winter coat. And I remember looking down. What time of year was this when you didn't have December. a winter coat? December. Oh fuck. And it was like I looked out the window, and I was like, "Damn, what is all that mud? It's snow." But I hadn't. Right. You know, I'm from Florida, so I hadn't even like. I forgot that that was like a part of the whole. Yeah, New York snow is nasty too. Uh huh. I knew I I was thinking about New York because when I worked for actually I worked for Philip Lim when he had his first line development, and I would notice that it was like a internship. Sure. And I would notice that um so many of their like their fabrics would come from the showroom in New York and their buttons would come from Tiger Button in New York and I was like maybe I could maybe maybe New York will give me more opportunities like they won't be so hung up right on this thing that I keep on facing you know so I got my last paycheck and I came there, and within a month... Do you have anything lined up? Do you have a place to stay? Anything I had a, my, one of my sorority sisters. I stayed in this windowless room for like a little under a month. Where? What neighborhood? Flatbush. Okay. Right off the um, the Prospect Park, off, off the queue. Uh-huh. And then <clears throat> I, I was corresponding... Like, I was like, well, maybe I should, like, also, like, check some Craigslist stuff. And through Craigslist, I met this um, woman who was working, who was getting her master's at Parsons, or at the new school. And she was doing this documentary on on um, romantic partnerships where one person is uh, black American and another is, like, like um from the Caribbean or whatever, and my boyfriend was Jamaican. Okay. She lived right up the street from my sorority sister. And then one of my contacts in Los Angeles, I put out an email. It was like, Happy New Year. Does anybody know any place where I can live? And she had a condo in, um, in um, what's that place called? Also in Flatbush, right across the street from the Prospect Avenue stop off the queue. So one stop down. Uh-huh. And um, 
I lived there, and that was like amazing. Oh, sure. Those were the things. Yeah. So I got a job immediately, you know, um, and until 2008, I worked pretty steadily in the fashion industry. Sure, okay. And it was around 2007 that I started um, making work as an art, like kind of like as a, you know, I had a day job, but I had enough money that I could um, pay for a studio. And I, I, like I said, got absorbed into the tribe because people were like, oh, you're obviously an artist. Because I'd just be, like, I'd be sharing with them some of those sketchbooks that I used to keep. Uh-huh. You know, because I just never stopped keeping them because I this love This practice it. that you developed in, in trade school. Yes. Okay. And that's why I um, started the blog because I was like, oh, I'll be able to, like, scan or put all that because you know it'd be like oh what was that thing that I was looking for and I'd have to like look through each of the sketchbooks to remember remind right. myself but I was like oh if I put it on a blog then you could just get it wherever you yeah at. then I could get it where I was at I couldn't search for it using a term yeah but yeah that's how it started and and when people would see my because it'd be like wouldn't it be cool if somebody did such or such or such or such like that's kind of the way I would start with my like like the kind of mental sketches of the work and and this a friend of mine was like oh i wish you just because at the time i was like doing like like i had done i had done like intimate apparel before and he basically always was saying like uh his joke was that oh you need to stop um uh making ladies panties and get in the studio (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I was like, how did, you know, he was like, oh, this sounds, he might say, oh, this sounds like an insulation project. And I'd be like, what's an insulation project? I don't understand. I don't yeah. even know, know. And so he would tell me, we would see one. I got educated. And then I was like, well, how do, how do I, um, how do I get the money to do something like that? Oh, you get a grant. Again, I went to, like, this is old school. So I, I go to the library and I ask the librarian, how do I get a grant? And she said, she said, <laughs> she said, um, oh, well, actually, we have the Brooklyn Arts Council is going to be hosting a seminar for their Brooklyn Arts Council grant. You have to come to one of these seminars to apply. So that's that's how it got started. This is beautiful. Like just a series of you being curious about something. Yeah actively pursuing further information and that just opening doors or yeah. like putting you in the right place at the right time or whatever. Yeah. That's very, this is great. <laughs> I so think so. What's your first, uh, the moment when you consider yourself an artist? Like, cause I know I, I did fanzines starting when I was 13 years old. Uh-huh. I wrote all the time. I published, I self-published. I did all kinds of stuff. I never would have called myself a writer. I got, I did my blog, I got in the paper, I got on TV, I wouldn't have called myself a writer. I started writing my book, I still wouldn't have called myself a writer, and it was like, there was some moment in, you know, after like, and I think part of it is just self-deprecation on my part, but there was like a moment where I had been like, I woke up one day and I had been getting up, you know, earlier than normal. And like getting dressed and sitting down at a day. I had an office in my sister's apartment. She had an extra room. Okay. And I had and I would get on my bike and I would bike to my sister's apartment and I would sit down at my desk from like 
11 a.m. to like 6 p.m. every day, and I would just write when I wasn't working at the diner. And I and there was a certain number of days when I, I was like, I had done that in a row where I was like, oh, I'm a writer now. You know, and I used to joke that I was, I was a waiter who was a writer as a hobby, and then, like, something just, one day I woke up and I was a writer who was a waiter as a hobby. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, it's hard to say, like, a specific moment when that uh, perception of myself shifted. So I'm curious for you about when did you start to conceive of yourself as an artist? Well, I mean, it was, it kind of, I started believing the lie that I had to tell these people to get what I wanted. So, like, I found out, I, I was like, oh, I have to get a finding, I could get a fiscal sponsor <laughs> for my Brooklyn Arts Council grant. You didn't have to, but you could. And I was like, ooh. I mean, I've been working in, in corporate America, because that's what apparel market is. Right. And I knew, I was like, I was doing all this stuff with combs. I was like, I kind of imagine myself as like a community, like a community activist kind of person. Like, it wasn't really art, it was just this way of presenting culture as a community support. That's, I think that's what I put in my mind. Cause okay. I was like, oh, you know, once I understood galleries and museums and stuff, I was like, man, you know, I go to these places and I'd be like the only black person there. Maybe there's a way to kind of introduce this concept, you know, um, earlier in, in different ways and stuff like that. And I don't know why I felt like I should be charged with this, but that's the story that I told myself. And sure, then, yeah. And I, you know, the first time, the first project that I was doing actually wasn't the project that, like, got, started the ball rolling. That project is Project 497 or John Henry and the Patchwork Penitentiaries, which I still haven't done, but, like, you know, I was like, well, I don't know if I have, I'm experienced enough to do that because it's big. Right. But maybe I can do something smaller. So I started making these, um, or I had this idea I was going to make these sculptures out of combs. And so I needed to get the combs because I didn't want to, like, I didn't want to spend all my money on the combs. Yeah. So, and I worked at a place that had a vice president of marketing. So I, like bought the name the number the direct line because you know online you can get like for cold calling and stuff and i got the vice president of marketing at goody goody combs uh-huh. and brushes and stuff and i like i want to say it took me about six months to finally like because first i called their pr firm and they were like yeah this sounds great like i lied and i was like yeah i'm an artist right and I have a show at Mokata. I hadn't secured any of this yet. Sure. And I was like, it's for Black History Month. And I was like, ooh, I could use Black History Month because then they'll be guilty and they'll give, know, me these combs. give me these yeah. combs. So they first they said yes, because I had read in like Essence Magazine that they were launching this, this product called Mosaic for women of color. Okay. And I was like, ooh, this will be great. And so I, when I didn't get any headway with the PR firm, I was like, I'm going to have to call the vice president of marketing. And so I sure. would leave these, like, over a period of months, I would leave these messages, you know, like, because I would very rarely get her online. Kimberly Nieves, I'll never forget. 
and I would, I would like the first time would be like totally ran, ran, rambling, and then um, I would write out my little script. And okay. I would, you know, so I know because there'd be like it would cut me off, and I'd have to start, you know, I right. learn. And finally, I broke through, and they sent me like eight boxes of products, all kinds of stuff. And I hadn't even like I hadn't even made the thing. I hadn't even figured out how to put the sculpture together. Sure. Um, but I used my uh, graphic design skills to kind of like like I cataloged all the cone shapes that I had, and I would kind of put it together like as a as a sketch. Right. And I, that would be the only thing that I would bring to these like when my naivete helped me a lot because it was just like I like was. Hello, my name is Kenya Robinson, and I would like to be in your museum. <laughs> like, like it was, I didn't even have, I just showed a picture and brought some cones with me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that'll be, you know, I didn't have any fear about, like, yeah. you know, uh, I didn't know to be afraid or like, oh, I'm saying the wrong thing. And the curator said yes and I because I kind of approached it like I would working in a corporate environment you know like I knew who to talk to I knew that it was the vice president of marketing for example right you have a familiarity with hierarchy yes so I knew who who could tell me yes right and I knew I was tenacious enough to keep asking until I got what I wanted Uh and it took I mean it took some time like I I didn't know about a Dremel tool. I, I was trying epoxies. I was trying to glue them together. That didn't work. Sure. I mean, it was like it was it was an interesting progression. But it was like I had lied so much uh-huh. about who I was and what I was doing and where I was at in the process. I mean, I ended up like fulfilling all the things that I initially said. Mm-hmm. But I like claimed them before I had any evidence <laughs> that it was going to come through that way, and um, yeah. So so after after the event, I you know I um, had an opening, and my both my parents were there. And they was, flew up from Gainesville. Are they still in Gainesville? No, my my mom was in Kansas City, Missouri, and oh, my I dad. Kansas City. Yeah, my my dad was. Where was he? Maybe. I think he was in Gainesville because my I think he was taking care of my grandparents by then, and they came up and it was like, oh, I mean, I like this. I put I hung everything. I didn't even have time to go home to like, like, change clothes. I still had the same clothes I had on the sure. install. I I hadn't done my hair, so I, like I just had a scarf on. Like I just didn't have any real concept of. How? Because I didn't. This was my first time, and I was doing it myself. Yeah. And um, where was this? At Mokata. At Mokata. So that's when I was like. After that, I st- I was still working. My coworkers even came to the opening, but I was really like, I'm an artist. This is what I need to do. Yeah. When I got uh, laid off from my gig at Anvil Knitwear. Uh-huh. Um. I couldn't find another job. Sure. So it was 2008. Nobody was here. Yeah, there was no. And somehow I was doing some little design gigs. And I'm not really sure how I even 
eight right. most days or got on a train or any of that stuff. How I paid my cell phone bill, like that's very like hazy. But it was then that I was like, I like I had a, a studio in preparation for this show. Uh-huh. And also understand that I was in fact an artist. Right. And because I was so broke I ended up not having a place to stay, which is the story of my fucking life. I gotta figure out how to solve that. But I would do copywriting for the guy who was the main leaser, because he was starting a, um, a nonprofit called the NARS Foundation. Okay. And so I wrote, I would like, facil- I facilitated like working with the attorney to get the 501c3. Mm-hmm. And in exchange for that, I got the studio. So I was able to, I basically, live there. I lived yeah. there. Uh huh. There's a robust history of artists living in their studios. Yes. Yes. I, also, discovering an art or like uh, honing an artistic practice because of uh, a lack of access to financial yeah. means. My friend Ian, who Ian Campbell, who ended up getting an MFA from Yale, also mm. um, probably around the same time as you, I think. Mm. Uh, he was like a guy I knew from punk bands. And the first I ever heard of him even doing art was his lease ran out and he didn't have a place to live and he hadn't lined something new up. And so he pitched this art show to this gallery that used to be on Grand Street mm. and Barinquin in Williamsburg called mm. Stay Gold and that involved, it was an installation that involved him having to live in it. <laughs> and he moved all his records and a hot plate, mm-hmm. and he vaped a bunch of weed in there, mm-hmm. and just like made tapes and ate beans off a hot plate, mm-hmm. and rode this stationary bike every day and slept on a mat in like the front window of the gallery. But it was like, I was like, you're an artist. Like I remember mm-hmm. go hang out with him in there, and he would be like, I mean, yeah, but also my lease ran out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, and now mm-hmm. motherfucker has an MFA. Same, mm-hmm. like. And kind of during this time, like, mm, a part of how I survived too was that I ended up meeting, I ended up meeting um, Shanique Smith through Greg Tate, and I helped her install a, a piece at Coochie Fritos. Okay. Coochie Fritos, that spot in Essex Market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I did that. And I was gonna go see a show she was in through Rush Arts, but I went to the one in the city and not the one in Brooklyn where it was. Uh-huh. Cause it was this show that was about art and fashion. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Sounds good. Uh, another person also made the same mistake and that's Mike Kalau. He's this amazing abstract painter. And when he said he was a painter, like, I was with my friend. I remember seeing him in the kind of in the cut. I was like, man, this motherfucker do something shady. You go high, I'm gonna go low. And of course, he was like totally soft spoken and right. very gracious. So we end up having like this New York moment. Like, like, all right, well, we're not gonna make it to the um, show. Let's just hang out for a little bit yeah. before you know going back home. Yeah, we'll go get a drink or whatever. Exactly. And he was like, oh, I'm a painter, and I'm like, 
you know, eye roll because I was sure. I was in Flatbush and whatever. At, at this time, I was in Flatbush. And, you know, I know those hoteps talking about I'm a painter, I'm an artist, or something like that. It's like, <laughs> sound like a lie. Yeah. But then I Googled him, and he was really, like, legit, uh-huh. you know? And, like, the whole notion of an MFA, I didn't know that you could do that. And he was always encouraging me to, like, consider it. And I was like, but I don't have a bachelor's. And he was like, well, if anybody is going to give you, like, admit you, it's probably going to be an art school. And, you know, you're doing work. Yeah. So, I mean, and his um, fiance now wife, Naima, who's also an amazing artist, she's the one that told me to apply to LMCC. And that's another place where I had lived. And, Uh you know, and it it kind of like, well, I mean, in fact, I didn't have any money. So she's the one that paid for my, um, I only applied for, to one school because that's all I could afford. Right. And um, so she paid for my application to Yale. Damn. Mm-hmm. That's, see, this is another thing is mm-hmm. that there's this, like, this notion that, like, uh, art practice or, like, being this, like, uh, being like a genius or like a successful creative individual is this solitary endeavor and it requires like cloistering yourself off from the world and blah 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 and I think that's like that's a false thing that Absolutely. the contemporary iteration of capitalism is actively trying to mm-hmm. uh, like convince us of but in actuality everyone I know that has any successful art practice or creative practice or any are successful a bar or restaurant or whatever, you have a community of people who believe in you and Absolute. are supporting you. That's the only way. I don't. I'm like, oh, that's the only way you do it. Like, some people have a family that's independently wealthy that can kind of support it. Some people have like, you know, a community built over years because they knew they were an artist from jump. Right. Some people like stumble into it. Yeah. You know. And I. I mean, I. I am your typical only child. Like, I really like people I'm a um, I am a socially adept introvert like you know most of my time uh-huh. is spent alone and I, I like definitely get drained from a lot of um, social interactive interaction but that doesn't mean I don't like it I really do enjoy it sure and I love like meeting people and asking them questions and you know through that curiosity, like you said, it, it ended up ushering in, like, revealing my own self to myself. Yeah. You know, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I'll never forget one time, um, so Mike ended up hiring me because he was working on these quilt paintings, so it was like, you know, he needed to get an industrial sewing machine, and like, there are a lot of things that I just knew because I was in the industry. Right. And, so I got hired as his, his assistant, and we would just, like, stitch and bitch, and he would, like, sneak in, like, oh, you should read this book, or what about this, and, like, really educating me. What kind of things is he suggesting? I can't even remember now, because they're so a part of who I am that I'm like, right. did I come up with that, or was that him? But it was, you know, his background is in arts education, uh-huh. and so it kind of, like, he kind of, like, just sneak in some things that I might want to consider. But one time I was there and he was like, oh, he just like out of nowhere is like, huh, 
I think it's so funny when artists pretend not to be artists. I was like, yeah, that's crazy, right? You know, like, like, I'm like, uh-huh. not even, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not even registering that he's talking about me. Right. You know, not this really. This is like a subtle. Yeah. Uh, but he's like, you should apply. Oh, what about this residency? The whole shebang. Right. You know, and it was like, it was crazy. I That LMCC application, I, um, I had to, I, it was like, I turned it in. It was due at like five o'clock. And I was like running down the streets, uh, you know, because you know how like if you don't know Lauren Manhattan, it can really confuse yeah. you. And I'm like looking for this place. I'm like, where the hell is Main Lane? Where is Main Lane? Uh-huh. I'm right, trying to run, trying to run. And that's how, that's how I submitted that application. Jesus, in person. <laughs> in person. Uh huh. Just right under the wire. Mm-hmm. So you go to LMCC. I go to LMCC. I. Um, end up seeing people who do have MFAs and right. I get a little taste of like because we have every Monday I think it's every Monday you meet with your fellow residents uh-huh. and you um, yeah you just I guess it's kind of like a soft critique but like then it's also I never had a studio visit before sure you know, and, and so I had studio visits, and so I started to learn more of the, the lingo, the yeah, vocabulary. Yeah, this is what the lexicon of this world is. Yes, and I, I liked it, I, 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 and then it started to be more like, alright, maybe I will, you know, apply for this MFA. And, right. and, and around this time, I mean, I'm, I'm doing projects, I'm making work, um, I'm in shows. <laughs> I'm I'm cur- I've already like during this time I curate my first two shows and that was a really like that is another way that I learned a lot cuz I would do studio visits like it's like once I knew that that existed I was like ooh I'm going to do a studio visit and yeah, so I'm just going to what's up let's yeah. just stop in let's visit with each other mm-hmm. yeah that's it's a nice writers don't have a studio visit equivalent yeah it's a nice thing. Yeah, it is a nice thing. So I learned a lot from the people that I wanted to include in these shows. Right. And I ran into like 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 that first show. That's when I met Sanford Biggers and Hank and Willis Thomas and Renee Cox and Rashad Newsom. Like I that's I stumbled. I mean cuz I mean the art world is small and the um the black art world is like a basically it's like a period like it's that circle is that small so you know you end up meeting a lot of people and um and that that's also when I started to understand the kind of professional side because I was like oh that's I seen that because that's a book that I saw at a bookstore right and this person oh and then they then I go see their talks oh that's another part of how this is professionalized. Did you conceive of yourself uh, like right away as part of the black art world as opposed to like the art world as a whole or like Absolutely. Do you see, and do you see do you see the black the black art world as like a facet of the art world or like a distinct alternative? Do you know what I mean? Like I know obviously there's a Venn diagram and there is some overlap. Yeah. But do you see it's more like a community of people creating alternative infrastructure or like a no like a subset of I, a larger thing I wish that it would be because I, I think that that um, 
that othering that is imposed yeah. can actually be a fantastic way of presenting another option. And that's what has frustrated me about the black art world because it's really just trying to be a facsimile instead right. of using that otherness as a way to like come up with a totally different form and way of right. distributing yeah. and mm -hmm. like yes we are different and we do things differently mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this whole system is organized differently yeah yeah uh, as opposed to it being essentially like a weird stock market yes <laughs> you know what I mean yeah yeah I didn't understand the uh, the financial like the investment aspects of art oh yeah until talking to Becca about like deep museum shit and the ways that like curatorial practices at national museums are oftentimes at the behest of wealthy collectors who want to have some artist shown so that their collection can be worth more money. Absolutely. So, you know, because they got to send their kid to Dalton or whatever so they need a little extra coin. Yeah. It's, uh, I had no, I had no clue. Yeah. Yeah, or or when I, I remember t saying this to somebody who whose family is quite wealthy, and I would be like, yeah, like I bet you like when people are trying to move money or or like get a credit line, let's say from a, a bank, and you know to do something, whether right. it's start a business or invest in something. Well, you know you gotta like take you know a talent tabulation of of the assets and I'm like you know I wonder how many of those folks borrow uh, a piece from a gallery and time it for when the insurance company uh -huh. comes to assess everything yeah and and she she was just like mm. she didn't say yes or no that's how I knew I was right because yeah. I was like they do. I just, I just knew that they would do something like that. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a little bit of my goal is to figure out a way to do my work and and approach it from a very different standpoint in terms of like the like if I depend on the black art world or the mainstream art world to support what I do, I probably will be continually disappointed. Right. So I'm like looking for a way to do what I do um, beyond between that those established models. Right. Your work, at least your work that I'm familiar with, mm -hmm. is about blackness. Like. It's the, about, it is about the relationship between black people and white people in the yeah. United States. Yeah, in a big way. Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, it's something that I'm fascinated with, just, again, like, being from a diverse place mm -hmm. and, like, being cognizant of differences. But uh, I don't think I ever had, like, a, any notion of being post-race, for instance. Right. Like, I don't think that ever even occurred to me. It's like... No, I do make assumptions about people. Yeah. I think the difference is, like, how do I let those assumptions color my interactions? How much of my, like, mm -hmm. prior uh, prior prejudices, which are unavoidable, whether you're my Puerto Rican neighbor right. in Queens or you're my Jewish grandpa that used to live in uh, 
Pembroke Pines, Florida, everybody's got these, everybody's got con- pre- preconceptions about people based on how they look, whether that's, you know, a, different types of white people have different faces or whatever. Right. All, whatever. Right. It's, I, I'm, I'm losing complete track of what the hell I was talking about, but it's like, <laughs> uh, I think, I think thinking about those, those relationships in a critical way, but also in a way that's honest about the fact that those those relationships exist and yep. there is a tension there. I think that's that's real and that's something that is worth considering. And I think art is a great place to consider that. The cheeky Lachey performance <laughs> uh, of the Black Sabbath karaoke that I saw. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's amazing. And also. Thinking about that performance and that costume, do you want to describe the Cheeky Lachey yeah. uh, project a little bit, just oh, for the listeners, so they can? Sure. So I don't know if I'll do a do it justice. Well, I I um, was confronted with uh, the box that I was be continually being placed into, regardless of what context, whether it was the black art world or the mainstream art world, and I was like, not into it. Right. You know, I felt like there were things that were getting read completely wrong just because I was saying it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to fly. And I was interested in in terms of performance, obscuring myself or also like kind of um, putting on a, a uniform. And so um, I had done this piece with this like sparkly fabric that I could see through like a screen. And I liked that. I liked that I could be mysterious, but I could see what was going on. Sure. And uh, so I, I, when I tried it again, it was uh, it looked like a sparkly ghost. So I was like, I don't like that. But I, something about the box and my identity and whatever kind of coalesced and and Cheeky was born. And Cheeky Lachey is just a nickname that a ex-boyfriend gave me because he said <laughs> that I was cheeky sure and um uh and I also like I like drag but I'm not interested in being drag king or drag queen I right. just want the sparkle that's interesting that you say that because there are it is cheeky in in every way in terms of like you step into this other identity mm-hmm. it has a different name yeah uh she What's Cheeky's pronouns? Cheeky. Cheeky? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cheeky's got a different name. Cheeky's got different pronouns. Cheeky is this full, complete, complex identity that you step into. Yes. And then embody and yes. sort of get to act out these different alternate kind of, uh, this alternate presence in the world. Mm-hmm. It, it's so much like drag. Mm-hmm. It's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. I've always found drag to be very... Very. I I used to dress up a lot when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. uh, and I got some pictures. I'll, I'll see if I can dig them up. Mm-hmm. I have some pictures where I look. I was really into just. I was into passing. Like before I hit puberty, uh-huh. uh huh. I was into just passing as a girl. I liked the idea that I could just trick people. And yeah. Just the notion that like I'd be at the movie theater, for instance, and just knowing that everybody thought that I was a girl just made me feel great like I had this power like yes. I had tricked them and I got I got into some weird stuff when I was in my 20s where I would like uh, 
I had a cane that I didn't need. <laughs> Which like gets into some awkward territory when you start to actually interrogate right. it about yeah. like disability and whatever. But um, I would dress up like an old guy sometimes and go out. I had I would do these elaborate identities and the ways that embodying a new identity changes like how you move your own body that you're in all the time, but all of yes. a sudden you become this different identity and you walk different yeah and you gesticulate different when you speak and the pattern of your speech changes and becomes natural and it you can really get into that. oh yeah it's it's a beautiful thing and it's a beautiful thing to watch yeah cheeky is a fully formed being yes cheeky exists in the world yes and yes Cheeky is beautiful to watch, and I like I like that. Um, I mean, is one of my most satisfying experiences is when I show some of the images, and they're like, "Is that you?" Uh-huh. And it's like that's what we should always be asking people. We shouldn't be so assumptive. Is that you? Uh-huh. Like I I think that that is what is most appealing about it like like I have been thinking about these avatars like I have this one piece called Monday Night where I got these like 10 white women and, and it was like fans and shit like that and I was the documenter so people at this performance didn't know who I was and it was like as soon as I obscured my role people opened up and got the communication of what I was trying to say. Because, you know, when I would do things, because of my black femaleness, it was like, it could be these five things because right. I read it in a book. And if it's not one of those five things, then I'm dismissing it. You know, it's like, it's not you. Like, yeah. like if I would do something that is not like a sign <laughs> as black art, which is, pretty much all of my work like then I'm not revealing myself and it's like everything that I do is about me right that's why it's actually you know I don't know what thing I read it was like how the personal the intensely personal is open to becoming universal that's why Cheeky Lachey is karaoke universal right because it's for everybody. It's for everybody. You know, like, yes, it is... The Cheeky Lachey is black fem femininity as a universal. Like the way we say mankind. It's cheeky kind. Right. One of the ways that it's, like, easiest to illustrate the, like, sort of dominance of white supremacy still in our culture is that is like the complete lack of imagination, right? Because like, grow, you know, growing up, I found myself empathizing with and identifying with all, all types of people. Yeah. All types of characters on TV. Oh yeah. I watched. I remember really feeling uh, Tracy Ellis Ross's character on Girlfriends. Oh sometimes yeah. When I was in high school, I was yeah. just watching, and I was like, I get it. You're an overachiever. Yeah. And you can't really find a date that you like. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel that. I'm yeah. In, I'm right there. Yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know what I mean? I just I found myself identifying with all different types of people, and so when I would I would read these narratives about, oh, you can only have, we can't make this movie because people aren't going to identify with it, or it's like. <laughs> 
No, people just think they're not going to identify with it because they have these misconceptions. They have this. There's this othering going on. Yes. Because of just unfamiliarity. Totally. And I, I mean, I feel like a big part of repairing the relationship between black people and white people uh-huh. in the United States is about developing imagination. Right. That like, I can imagine, like, like, like I said, sometimes I have to imagine myself as an indignant white woman. Sure. To get things done. Yeah. You know, or I have to imagine my, like, I put myself in my mind in different modes of imagination so that I can embody it because it's all me. You know, like like blackness and whiteness in particular as these kind of um, opposing aspects right. are defined and, and made by one another. Right. So I can really just like you know, sometimes I like sometimes I serve Bush Girl realness. Sometimes yeah. I'm like, you know, 1950s housewife. Sometimes I'm like, in my mind, you know, I have to imagine myself a corporate CEO. Um, you know, sometimes I have to imagine myself as like, you know, a member of the faithful, and all of those like imaginings right. are important. Also, blackness and whiteness are both equally fabricated. Totally. And both encompass so many complicated identities. Yep. Like, your Gainesville childhood, my friend's mom who grew up in an orphanage in Jamaica, yeah. and my friend who spent her childhood in Cameroon, Yeah. All and then moved with her diplomat parents to go to, like, a nice high school in the U.S. Right. Those are all very different identities, and they are only linked by this kind of fabricated notion just like yep. my childhood my friend Ernie in Appalachia yeah and you know Becca growing up in She's uh, Bloomington yeah <laughs> these things are there's like the things that that uh, the affinity that we feel for each other the things that feel connected are fabricated uh, in, a, in a similar way yeah so I'm like why can't I can why can't I cross the aisle so to speak right to like you know what I'm saying if it's all made up right so why can't you why yep. can't you embody your bossy white woman when you need to I mean it's right. necessary Miss yeah. Ann <laughs> absolutely Miss Ann comes out to play sometimes she <laughs> sometimes she's named Pamela Miss <laughs> Pamela mm-hmm. yeah no I think that's I think that's real what do you think that like you talk about repairing how we need imagination to repair this relationship yeah but, what do you imagine the repaired relationship looking like? Do you know what I mean? Because I, I don't know if I even know what that looks like. I think that, I think it, like, um, right now, it subsumes into this, like, other imaginative space uh-huh. of, like, Americanness. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know, something about that feels much more interesting. Right. Like, you know? You remember how... Uh, I don't like when I I just think about sometimes like how patriotic Dipset was after 9/11. Oh yeah. <laughs> in this way where it's like on the sa- at the same time Jewel Santana says calls himself Young Mohammed Ada uh, in the like Rap City freestyle or whatever mm-hmm. but then also like K 
Cameron is oh, on I miss TV. Rap City. Yo, I watched <laughs> that. I have so there's VHS tapes of Rap City at my parents' house. Yeah. That's real. <laughs> Big Tig. Uh, <laughs> the uh, but at the same time, Cameron is on TV talking about how he's gonna get the Taliban. Yeah. And like, and like get the terrorists. And yeah. Shit. And it's like that is such a complicated yeah. set of notions and allegiances. Yeah, I mean, I have this one, you know, when I was at, at Skowhegan, I was really, like, exploring, exploring that. I would, I would like, walk through the, the camp at night, because I have this little portable amp, and uh-huh. sing the national anthem, and it would be like, this haunting <laughs> kind of thing, <laughs> as like, Cheeky Lachey. Because it's just like, I, I mean, I have, my, my dad was in the military for 23 right. years. And so it's like, I am so aware of that complicated relationship because it's like, yes, I can be highly critical. I mean, it's like, it's mass murder. Everybody know it. Right. But it's like, I imagine, uh, like I think about, th- there are so many like black artists, un- like actors, writers, and what they, they have this weird thing in common, dad in the military. Because it it opens up spaces that are like like the fact that my dad could make that kind of salary, like he's uh-huh. not gonna be able to do that like during his era. But right. he did, or travel. Right. But he did. Like right. all of those things, like huh. that that affects me certainly and you know it's like I am I am intrigued by that yeah that's fascinating because mm-hmm. it's like a, it's like a forced buy-in you know where it's like well, you want access to the the resources or the like you have to you have to put it on the line I mean I, I so that's what I imagine, but the other part is um, like, like with the with the memorial service for the white man in my pocket. Uh-huh. Um, a, lo- a bunch of people have said, "Oh, I'm gonna dance on his grave," and I'm like, "No, you're not. Like, you are going to like. I want to create a scenario which you actually mourn this because because once that white male heteronormativity is put really put to rest like in real life or if if we could even imagine it yeah it's like i as a black person have to then give up my moral high ground because i'm always right uh-huh. you know in this scenario and that's really like that's kind of a nice feeling too and then um you know i gotta like i gotta like white women don't get to be the most beautiful anymore if that is cut off like right like it's a lot of things that we all have kind of taken from this system that define us actually right that we have accepted and molded and uh-huh and so if we're really gonna like reconceptualize then there we gotta give that up too yeah yeah you gotta give all of it yeah yeah oh wow <laughs> wow uh-huh I feel like this has been a good conversation. Do you want to keep going? Is there anything that I left out that you really think needs to get mentioned? 
Well, I hope that people listen to. Um, oh yeah, let's talk about that. To uh, Trash Day and, and Stank Love now. Trash Day and Stank Love. Those Stank are both on. On Clock Tower. Clock Tower Radio. How do you find that? Clocktower.org. And just search Trash Day or Stank Love. Do they do they air live or are they? Yeah, they do live stream and then there's an archive available too. Okay. So you don't have to be sad if you missed it. Right. And both those things. Yeah. And do you have? Anything you want to, like you have a website or anything you want me to mention on the thing? I mean, I'm Googleable, so if, so you just Google just, if you're like interested, yeah. I got a Wikipedia entry, There's which Wikipedia. I'm very excited about. There's parentheses around the last That's name. That's right. Get, it, get into it. What's that about? Okay, so um, when I decided that I was like a professional artist, uh-huh. I was like, I want, I had seen, I had seen Lori Anderson like 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 well one I had heard this uh, thing was before I was an artist I was doing some work for a friend of mine that was up late and I was listening to, to NPR and uh-huh. they were doing an interview with Lori Anderson never heard of this woman before sure. and I was like this is cool like what is this yeah and I um, kind of kept it on my radar and I saw a performance at BAM uh-huh Yes, bam. And uh, she was talking about uh, secrets and how, you know, your mom's maiden name is like a secret. And I was like, shit, like my maiden names, they are interesting, you know, like they kind of feel like placeholders, you know? Like I can't imagine, like now I'm like, I'm gonna be 40 this year and I'm just like, I can't even understand myself as Kenya anything else. You know, like that just be so weird. Right. But that's the expectation. So I wanted to kind of like highlight that, um, that it was, you know, it was just a placeholder. <coughs> wink, wink. Right. So, and it, and I like the way it looked and it also like would sometimes move me up to the top of the list. Oh. So I thought. the parentheses yeah. comes before an A. <laughs> <laughs> that's sneaky. You know, yeah. and, and now that, like, and what's great, what I love about it is that, you know, with the new, sometime, at some point for the iterations of Microsoft Word, if I would put my initials in something, just K and then the R in parentheses, it would turn into a registered tra- uh-huh. trademark. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. thought that looked hot, too. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like all the, like, kind of... Just like the aestheticization of identity formation yes. that you do yeah. in your work. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's all it's all a costume. Like what RuPaul say, we born naked and the rest is drag. Uh-huh. Like all of it is is drag. I just, you know, it's like, it's like, how are, how are we, are we going to make the drag? Are we going to define what it is? Or are we going to be, are we going to be tricked by corporate interests you know the medical industry like you know that gets levels to it so I was yeah. like I want to just be more imaginative in general uh-huh. and recognize that it's all I can I can mold it I can I can take something that I see all the time physically uh, and and make it into something different you know like that that's a 
that I guess the last thing is privileges plastic material the class that I'm I'm teaching um, starting February 21st at Pioneer Works too uh-huh. so you know it's like we have to like our privilege is living living we already won right there are no additional awards you made it <laughs> you know it's like you're yeah. number one right <laughs> and doing things to be intentionally aware of that sure that like I am looking around here I'm having this experience right cause before it happened it was I didn't and then when I'm gone that so I won yeah Paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence, but committed no crime. And bad mistakes. I made a few. I've had my share of sin kicked in my face, but I've come through. And then Champions, my friends. We'll keep on fighting till the end. We are the champions. We are the champions. No time for losers. Cause we are the champions. Of the world. All right. Thank you so much for having the patience and forbearance to listen to me butcher this Queen song. Thank you to Queen for writing this song for me to butcher. And uh, listen, just a piece of advice. If you're like I was until a couple of years ago and you think you're too punk to listen to Queen, get your shit together. Queen fucking rules. Freddie Mercury is so fucking sick. Watch the I Wanna Break Free video. He's got the big mustache, the cool Keith wig, the latex housewife outfit, pushing that vacuum around. That song is a fucking rocker. Seriously. I'm just... From me to younger me to all the younger me's out there, get your shit together. And with that out of the way, uh, thanks also to Pat Ganley, the sound engineer, and to LaCara Occulta for writing the theme song. And major, major thanks to Kenya for uh, living in this crazy world, doing such cool stuff, and for being on the show. And, uh, you know, if you want to check out some of Kenya's work, like she said, she's Googleable. But um, I just want to name drop uh, her two radio programs, Trash Day and Stank Love that are both on Clock Tower Radio at clocktower.org. They're both very good. Check that shit out. That's all for this month. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts, if you haven't already, so you don't miss an episode. Next month's guest is going to be Faiza Krachaney. She sings in Bondage and Body Pressure, two great hardcore bands here in Austin, Texas. Look them up on Bandcamp if you haven't heard them already. And I'm just going to leave you with a couple words from her, a little bit of a teaser for the next month's interview. And that's it. This is all from me. No cops, no creeps. 
piece in the pizzeria. Here's Faiza. And I was always told when I was little that I talked too loud or that I talked too much. And so as soon as I started reading about things that made sense to me, like, oh, this is why people treat me this way. Or this is what it means that my dad is from the Middle East. Like, right. this is what it means that my, you know, my family is of immigrants. Like, it all started clicking and just made me really fucking mad. 